Amen. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a genuine joy to be with you uh, this morning. Um, Just because I'm aware, uh, I know a fair few of you, but for some of you, this might be the first time you're seeing me. So let me start by introducing myself. Um, So I'm uh, Andy Tuck, and apart from one year of my life that I lived in New Zealand, I have exclusively lived within the borders of the ancient kingdom of Wessex. Uh, So I am a southern Englishman. Um, I work at Everyday Wimbledon, and I've been there for about two and a half years. Uh, One of my favorite things to do is to go up running on Wimbledon Common. I don't know if, do many of you guys spend time up there? I was amazed to find it was a real place, um, and I blame the Wombles uh, for that. Do you remember their intro song? Um, it goes, Wombles of Wimbledon, Common are we, but there's definitely a break between Wimbledon and Common. So I used to think that was a statement about where they lived and then their socioeconomic status, uh, where it turns out Wimbledon Common is actually the place, and it's beautiful. Um, this morning, uh, if you haven't been around uh, an everyday church for a while, uh, you might not know that we're in the middle of a, a sermon series looking at the book of Ephesians. And today's topic, uh, we're looking at God at work, and Paul is looking at the roles of slaves and masters in a Ephesians Six, uh, five to nine. But to understand what he's saying for us here, we need to understand the flow of Paul's argument right the way through uh, Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, either a physical one, uh, get it open, there are some on the sides, or if you have it on your phone, uh, open that app right now. Or if you don't have an app, get out your phone, Google Ephesians 5, and we'll follow it through together as we look at this. Uh, you'll see there, From uh, the start of chapter 4, verse 1, Paul has been talking to us on the theme of holiness. He's moving us to think about how do we live out our lives now that we believe in Jesus. So he's moving us from this place of thinking, how do we sit in Christ, what it means to be in him, and now what it means for us to walk in the way worthy of him. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 1 starts, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he's gone through this whole section, which lasts to 6 verse 9. And the section we're looking at uh, today, all about God at work, kind of starts actually with 5.18, where Paul instructs us not to get drunk on wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. If you see that verse in verse 18, you'll then see he lists what we might term signs of the Spirit. Uh, It's just a phrase that helps collect these together. He encourages us to sing together. Tick, we've done that this morning. Instructs us to sing alone as well. I wonder what your favorite worship song in the sour is. Um, But to sing alone, he encourages us to practice gratitude. And then by the time we get to verse 21, he says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, i.e. that we should live our life seeking to elevate others. And into this command, then, he gives us three sets of examples about how we are to elevate uh, others. And because of this flow through, I I actually want to spend the first chunk of my uh, time with you today actually exploring some of the context, the building of the context through the few verses before ours uh, today. So before thinking about masters and slaves, God being in the workplace, let's have a big view of Scripture going the way through. And I actually want to approach our passage slightly differently um, this morning. Uh, If you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that this passage or this section of Ephesians is controversial, Uh, particularly verses 22 to 33, particularly 22 to 24. And they're controversial because they look into gender roles, how we should raise our children, and then this issue of slavery. And it can be really hard to read these verses in our cultural context. Uh, either because you find them difficult to defend, uh, because this language of submission that's right the way through uh, this passage is unpalatable in our culture, or they can erode your confidence in Scripture because you've had negative experiences of the themes in this passage. Indeed, some people would have used these verses to abuse you in the past. 
But I'm hoping to chart a course through these verses today that will help us see the value and the beauty of this passage. Uh, I ask for your forgiveness in advance. If I say things clumsily or poorly, uh, my aim this morning is to speak the truth in love to you. So I'd like to start with a big question. What is power? Have a brief think. How might you define power in your own mind? I think power expressed as violence and force, uh, coercion, it can dominate our imagination. So think of armies and weapons, strength and dominance. It's all about getting others to submit to you and to your will. And this narrative is right the way through our culture. Because don't just think about how our culture defines power, but also think how it defines its opposite, powerlessness. Think, for instance, about how the word submission is used outside of Christian contexts. Uh, To be in a place of submission is to be in a place of powerlessness and therefore to be avoided at all costs. Let me give you an example from my own life. I have an amazing older brother. Uh, He is an amazing man, brother, son, husband, and now father thrice over. Uh, He is an inspiration to me. um, And growing up, one of my favorite hobbies was to fight him. Uh, all in good spirits, of course. We would play fight together. Uh, genuinely, sometimes we'd just get home from school. We'd be looking at each other and just be like, do you want to fight? <laughs> yeah, all right. You know, and we would go at it. You know, there'd be certain rules. Don't punch the face. Don't mess the hair, that type of thing. But we would go at it aiming to give dead legs and dead arms. The aim was of beating the other. Basically, getting the other into a position where they couldn't move out. You could carry on beating them, basically so that they could submit. And submission in this context, then, is all about defeat, Submission is what you do when you are pinned down, when you're in pain, and when there's no way out. It's a declaration of powerlessness, of giving up. It's about being in a position where I have no influence, where I'm completely at the mercy of another, in this case, my older brother. Literally with him, if I didn't submit, he would go on pounding me and pounding me. But is this really all there is to power? And is this the only way that we should seek to use it? Because I think if we limit ourselves to these hard and violent, destructive expressions of power, then actually we miss its true nature. There's a sociologist named James Davison Hunter, and he's got a book called To Change the World. Uh, There he looks at how all of human relations are inherently power relations. And unless a person lives in complete and utter isolation from others and the things that they provide, then it's impossible actually for us to remove ourselves from these structures of power, the complex dynamics of power and what power provides us. Uh, Power, in short, is inherently relational, interactive, dynamically shared. It's contentious and it plays out at every single level of society. So not just amongst individuals, but against, amongst social groups, institutions, local and even national communities. If defined like this, then power is inescapable. Power is ubiquitous. It's all around us and all of us have it. And so because we all inherently have power, the question we need to ask ourselves is not how do I get more of it, but rather what do I do with the power that I have? And to help us understand this passage this morning, I would actually like us to take a step outside of Ephesians. And I'm going to limit myself to one passage for this and look at John 13. So again, if you have your Bibles, have a flick to John 13. Because we're going to spend a few minutes just in there. In John 13, Jesus provides us with a really robust challenge to the view that power is only demonstrated in the domination of others. Instead, when we look to his example, we see that power can be expressed and exercised through love. 
Power is not to be used to control others, but rather to serve others. Power doesn't have to dominate. It doesn't have to be used to control. Actually, as we'll see, power is not just to be seen in uses of force and coercion, but can also be seen in moments of sacrifice and in love towards others. It's a giving of oneself for the benefit of another. And this morning, I hope that we'll see that for the disciple of Jesus, power is love in action. And that we should exercise this self-giving practice of power as abundantly as possible, with as many people as possible, as often as possible. So Jesus completely turns our understanding of power on its head, and let me show you how. So John 13, the passage you see on the screen above me, is actually really the beginning of the end of John's gospel. He's got another, he goes to chapter 21, but it's here that um, John is describing the uh, events of Jesus' final night before the events of that first Easter. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. And so with an eye firmly fixed on John 19, the events of Good Friday, here in John 13, John gives us an example of Jesus' sacrificial love. Uh, This is the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Uh, The phrase to wash someone's feet has become synonymous with acts of service and love, especially those that require a servant to be in a position of vulnerability or humility. Now, feet washing wasn't an optional extra when Jesus was alive 2,000 years ago. It was a necessity. Uh, Back in Jesus' day, people wore open sandals. They walked on dry earth streets with open sewers, and there were lots and lots of animals with the byproducts they leave behind. It would have been a dusty and a dirty environment. People's feet would have been in dire need of a clean before they were reclined up against someone else's face just before they were about to eat food. Uh, If you want a modern-day example of this, have you ever worn sandals around central London? then you will know exactly what I'm talking about, the mess and the muck that you find on your feet at an end of that experience, not to be repeated. Washing feet like this is an unsavory task, and that's why it was left to the lowliest servants. But in John 13, we read, just as Jesus and his disciples were settling down for this evening meal together, it's Jesus himself who gets up, takes off his outer clothing, then wraps this towel around his waist, and he starts to work his way around his disciples, individually washing their feet. What a wonderful image of love and service. And let's just remember who Jesus is in this instant. He's the one that we've been praising this morning. He is God himself come to live among us. He is the great life bringer to all of creation. Jesus is not the, just the powerful one. He is the all-powerful one. Yet instead of grasping onto his power and his divinity, Jesus here in John 13 deliberately, willingly, knowingly and actively lays that aside as he becomes a servant, taking on its nature and models to us what it looks like to live a life of service to God. The one who was intrinsically worthy of all of creation's worship gave up everything to serve others, even to wash people's dirty feet. This is the one who could have rightly demanded creation's adoration and devotion. Instead, he chose servanthood, the nature of a slave. So cast your eyes over verses uh, 3 to 5 as we look at uh, Jesus, uh, the slave. Let me uh, read these verses to you. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, these verses don't give me uh, the impression that Jesus here was being forced to serve his friends against his will. Rather, here, Jesus is consciously humbling himself for the benefit of others. 
And there is here no mistaking the slave-like nature of Jesus as he washes the disciples' feet. His disrobing here in verse 4 is particularly significant. The action of wrapping a garment around one's uh, waist is, in preparation for service, was preeminently and characteristically a slave's action. Slave is a a loaded word though, isn't it? And it's easy for our minds to be filled with thoughts of the abhorrent and repugnant transatlantic slave trade that displaced millions of Africans to the Americas with all of its horrendous uh, abuse. And and as an aside, if you would like to explore some of the Christian response to uh, slavery, can I recommend a couple of books uh, to you? One is William Haig's um, biography of William Wilberforce, the campaigner who ended and abolished slavery in Great Britain and its empire. Um, But then also um, uh, Ephesians. Uh, So this is... Uh, the uh, Bible Speaks Today commentary written by a guy named John Stott. Have a turn to pages 250 to 259. He's got a brilliant explanation of uh, particularly slavery in the verses that we'll look together um, uh, later. But I want to argue that we shouldn't abandon the word slave unnecessarily here in the context of John 13. Because Jesus' example, it contains a powerful truth for us. Uh, There have been uh, a a tendency in modern English translations to translate uh, the Greek word doulos as servant rather than slave, but in doing so, we've lost some of the power, the significance of that word, because there's an important difference between servant and slave. Uh, A servant gives service to someone. A slave belongs to someone. Jesus becomes a slave to serve his disciples. And in doing so, then, he's communicating a deep sense of belonging. In this action, he's effectively saying to disciples, I am yours. What a profound moment. John is deliberately guiding us to see God's nature as a being of self-giving love. This is an example, then, of Jesus' use of power. He comes to serve us. And he intends that we should copy him and go and do likewise as we love and serve others. Uh, Have a look at verses uh, 12 and 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me uh, teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And this call here by Jesus to follow his servant example is repeated across all four of the Gospels. It's as one in authority, Jesus served. So too should his disciples serve. Jesus' extreme example of service here is one he fully intends his disciples, his followers, to follow in, to copy in their own lives. But it's hard, isn't it? And this is because this type of selfless love is exactly the opposite of our own selfish tendencies. I think this is what the Bible calls sin. A really helpful definition of sin from, I think, everyone's favorite 16th century German monk, Martin Luther. Here he is in all of his Reformation glory. He defines sin, this word, as man curved in on himself. And I love this description because it expresses something of our own selfishness, our uh, obliviousness to the needs of those around him, and our self-obsession as we curve inwards towards our own needs rather than the needs of others or indeed an acknowledgement of God. 
But by following Jesus' example of servanthood, this reverses our self-obsession, our self-centeredness, this curving in on ourselves. Rather, it focuses us outwards. It curves us outwards. Service is a profound commitment to others. And it is not a means to an end. It's not something to be done to gain a promotion or advantage over others. No, true service here is done for the other person's sake, not ours. This is Christ's example to us. The nature of true self-giving love, other-centeredness, is at the very core of Jesus' leadership and the example to us. And this commitment to others isn't timidity. It's not people-pleasing. Rather, it takes a special kind of courage to put yourself under the position of others that you would raise them above yourself. And to follow Jesus' example of humility and sacrifice is to then deliberately put ourselves in lowly positions so that we serve, might serve others better. It's to go without so that other people might have. It's to actively look for ways to bless others, to look for their good, their encouragement, their well-being, to shoulder other people's burdens and to work for their good despite whatever personal cost it may give to us. Uh, This level of commitment, service, and humility uh, is not a contrived surrender, but it's a true devotion to another. Serving is an active love and pursuit that emulates Jesus' conscious, sacrificial example. Uh, This is a call to use our freedom, our power, for the flourishing of all of those that live around us with our eyes firmly set on Jesus' example. And so with Jesus' example, uh, his topsy-turvy use of power in mind, let's return again to Ephesians um, 6. First, uh, I would like you to notice as you see this passage, uh, cast, your mind, uh, cast your eye over Ephesians uh, 5 from verse 21 onwards. Uh, I want you to see there how Paul pairs these uh, relationships. So he talks about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Which ones does he list first. Remember the first century context into which Paul is writing, where adult free men dominated society, a society in which adults could abandon their babies or kill their own children with no legal ramifications, a society in which women were second-class citizens, a society in which slaves were literally viewed as the property of their masters. Into this society, Paul first addresses wives then husbands, children, then parents, slave, then masters. Uh, This order is revolutionary. Paul is flipping here traditional power structures on their heads. This is a completely new way to live. And all of this stems from his instructions that we see in verse 21. That's not verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See how he does this with wives and husbands in verses 22 to 33. Both wives and husbands are to look to Christ's example. Now, how does Christ's example of submission help us to read these instructions to wives, verses 22 to 24, this command for wives to submit to their husbands? This is precisely what Jesus modeled for us in John 13. And where is Jesus' example of submission, his demonstration of his self-giving, other-centered love, where is that most evident or most on display? It's the cross. And so what example does Paul give to husbands, in verse 25 onwards, a model for how they are to love their wives, the cross? Like, isn't that interesting, that whatever roles we might have, both parties were to look to elevate the other as we look to Jesus' example. 
See how Paul does that with children and with parents in verses uh, 6, uh, 1 to 4. Children are to honor and serve their parents. He then urges restraint on parents and encourages them to care for and train their children to love others just as Jesus does. And so finally, we arrive at our verses for today, where Paul discusses this relationship between slaves and masters. Uh, Let me read um, from uh, verse 5. Let me read these five verses to you. Slaves and masters, obey your, uh, sorry, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with all sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only when, um, not only to win their favor uh, when their eyes are on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you, um, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So let's dive into the substance of these verses and what Paul is saying before considering some own practical applications for our own lives. Paul here starts by addressing slaves. Again, Paul is addressing slaves. This is radical. Paul expects them to be, lead, uh, to be listening alongside everyone else in the congregation that would be gathering. Slaves are expected to be part of the public reading of this letter when it was first given. An assembly just like this. Slaves sat right alongside their masters. And think everything that Paul has said in this letter is addressed to them just as much as anyone else. Uh, Think of all the stuff that Paul has talked about, how God has chosen every single one of us, predestined to be adopted as his sons. Think about how Paul has waxed lyrical about the unity that we have in one another, the unity that we have because there is one Lord, one Father, there's one baptism and one faith, there's one Holy Spirit that binds us all together. Paul is addressing slaves here, just as he is everyone else. They are part of the community, brothers and sisters. It's radical. And he's instructing them to obey. But it's so important that we follow the flow of Paul's argument here. They're to obey because they're serving Christ. And it's true for us. By serving other people, we are serving Christ. Uh, Remember Jesus' words in uh, Matthew 25, verse 40, where he says, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is why Paul says here in verse 7, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. He is urging slaves here to obey their masters for their good, not because they are forced to, but because by serving others, we follow Jesus' example. We are obeying Jesus' commands to love our neighbors and to love even our enemies. Jesus' example to us is to work for the other person's benefit, to spend ourselves in the service of another person. Uh, To masters, Paul gives the instructions not to threaten their slaves. He's basically telling them not to abuse their power. Same as he did with husbands and parents, Paul here is saying, do not abuse your power. Uh, remember the first century context that this would, have, uh, this would have been very easy for them to do. Uh, a master could treat a slave almost absolutely how they wanted, any harsh treatment that they wanted for any reason that they wanted. But Paul says all of this, the instructions to both slave and masters with humanity's equality firmly in mind. Uh, Look at how this theme of equality is riddled through these verses. Each one, whether they are slave or free, in the same way, both slave, both their master and yours, there is no favoritism. 
Paul here is pointing us towards God who will judge fairly. All people will be judged fairly by God. And he gives both sets of instructions with equality and God's justice front and center. And so while we may be disappointed in these verses that Paul doesn't condemn slavery, that it's important for us to focus on what Paul does say, not on what he doesn't. Because Paul's point here is reverential, it's not political. He is saying to all of us, submit to one another, whoever you are, wherever you are. And so to the direct applications for our own lives. Now, rather than just give you a list of uh, do's and don'ts, I'm going to ask you a series of questions that I hope will challenge you to apply uh, within uh, to your workplace. Uh, but please uh, don't discount yourself from these if you're not in paid employment. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, if you're unemployed or if you're retired, don't discount yourself. Rather, apply these questions to areas in your life in which you are productive. Uh, perhaps that's in a volunteering role. Uh, perhaps that's serving your family or serving in church, uh, wherever that is. Uh, let these questions help you reflect on how you are serving wholeheartedly in your lives. And, and as I go through these questions, watch for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, for, for me, it feels that in our, um, it, that for me, in our society, is almost like a, what our society would call being uh, our voice of our little conscience. It's like it, our conscience being pricked. It's those little moments where you're like, ooh, ouch. Do you know the ones I mean? Watch for that as you go through. Don't allow yourself to fall into condemnation. God loves you and cares for you. He died for every single sin you ever have committed, are committing right now, or will commit in the future. You are free and forgiven in him. Don't fall into condemnation. But allow yourself to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit working in your life to help you become more like Jesus. So, in all of these things, I encourage you, look for maybe just one thing that you would like to take a next step in. So, for those of us who work for others... Do you serve with integrity? Uh, Do you only work hard when you're being watched or do you slack off when no one's around? Uh, Do you steal time from your employer by arriving late to your workplace or by taking a much uh, longer lunch break or by leaving early? How much time do you spend on social media in the office? How many times do you check your phone while you should be working on another project? Uh, Do you try and cut corners to avoid awkward or hard processes? Are you a positive influence in your office, i.e., do other people in your office look forward to you being around because of the joy and light that you bring into those meetings or relationships? Are you honest with the expenses that you claim? Uh, how many of us have or have had a boss that really makes it hard for, them to ser- for us to serve them willingly, right? Do you try and think the best of your boss or do you assume the worst of them? I find that really challenging. Do I assume the worst or do I try and think the best of their motives? Uh, What proactive ways have you sought to demonstrate God's love for those that are in authority over you? For those of you struggling with this right now, how might you serve your boss this week? How might you demonstrate God's love for them? What gift might you buy them? What kind word or encouragement might you say to them, even in the face of criticism? What act of kindness could you show to them? And do you know that Jesus will reward you for the good that you do do? Uh, For those of us then who manage or look after others, let's also feel the challenge of these verses. Are you guilty of feeling superior because of your title or your wage or your position or authority? Uh, Do you share praise? Do you take blame? 
Do you view those under use just as tools for your own advancement or do you give opportunities for them to flourish? Do you give out work regardless of others' workload or stress levels or are you attentive to the needs of those that are working around you? Do you give time to listen to genuine concerns? Do you give space for people to creatively bring their own unique contribution within your workplace? Are you harsh in your language or your manner? Are you aggressive or threaten others when they don't do exactly as you want in the way that you would have done it? In other words for us, do you submit to others in your life out of reverence for Christ? Now we've covered loads of ground uh, this morning, so let me uh, close with this. Because I think it can be really easy for us to be intimidated by Jesus' level of sacrifice. I know I can sometimes look at Jesus and think, how am I ever supposed to emulate that? But remember, Jesus is the one who asks us to give him the little that we do have and watch him work wonders with it. The smallest things can make the biggest difference. Uh, Let me give you an example from the world of nature. One of the most exciting scientific discoveries of the past uh, half centuries has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. Now, a trophic cascade is an ecological process that starts at the very top of the food chain and tumbles then all the way down uh, to the bottom. And the classic example of this is what happens when, in Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that wolves can also bring life to many others. Uh, Now, before the wolves um, turned up, uh, before the wolves turned up, and they had been absent for about 70 years, uh, the number of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, uh, had built up and up in Yellowstone's Park. And uh, despite human efforts to control them, they had managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to absolutely nothing, just main grass. They had grazed almost everything else away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. At first, of course, they did kill some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Uh, Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. So the deer started avoiding particular parts of the park, so places where they could be trapped more easily, so think valleys and gorges. And interestingly, those places immediately started to regenerate. Uh, In some areas, the heights of the trees quintupled, that's five times growth in just six years. Bear Valley sides quickly became forests of aspen, and they look beautiful, aspen trees. Uh, Willows and cottonwoods, uh, as soon as that happened then, birds started uh, moving in, and the number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase, because beavers like to eat trees, and beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. So they create niches for other species. They build dams in the rivers which provide habitats for otters and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. Uh, The wolves kill coyotes as a result of that. The number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which of course then meant more hawks and more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles come down to feed on the carrion that the wolves have left. Bears fed on it too. And their population began to rise, partly because there were more berries to eat uh, on the growing regenerated shrubs. And of course, the bears then reinforced the effect and the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. So they began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. There were more pools formed, more riffle sections, all of which are wonderful wildlife habitats. 
the rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason is that the regenerated forests stabilized the banks of the rivers so that they collapsed less often, so the rivers became more fixed in their course. So the wolves, even though just being a few in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of Yellowstone National Park, the huge area of land, of course everything is in America, but they also changed the very physical geography of the national park. Now, I'm not advocating for the reintroduction of wolves, and particularly not into London, no. But what I am advocating for is for us to introduce more love, more care, more concern, more kindness, more other-centeredness into our lives and our workplaces and communities. The smallest things make the biggest difference. Just imagine the difference that our little small acts of kindness can make in the hands of our living and loving God. Uh, He is the one that tells us if we sow a seed in the right place, actually we reap back a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. He is the one who says, give me your loaves and fishes and I will feed 5,000. He's the one that says, you have faith the side of a mustard seed? Watch it move that mountain. Uh, So let me encourage you, follow Jesus' example. He used his power to bless and unburden, to serve and heal, to mend and restore and to liberate. These are the practices of power then that we, his church, should aspire. Our power should be used in love for the blessing and the benefit of others. So I want to encourage you this week, look for ways to prefer the needs of others over your own. Look for ways to astonish people with your generosity. Unleash a little small act of kindness and see what our loving, amazing God uh, does with it. Uh, Before we worship again and take communion, uh, let me just close uh, in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world. Thank you for the lengths that you went to to serve us. Thank you for your sacrificial love. Thank you for your example to us. Highlight to us opportunities to act like Jesus, to serve and to love others. Show us times and places where we can bless those around us. Would our worlds be better places because we have chosen to submit ourselves and work for the flourishing of others. May your kingdom come as we follow the example of our servant king. Father, we pray this for our families, for our homes, our workplaces, and our church. For your glory, our good, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.